G'day guys and welcome back to another Feed Income episode. In today's episode, we spoke to Monique Tui, who is a registered psychologist. We discussed with Monique her journey as a psychologist and at the time being one of four registered Muslim practicing her profession. We delve into topics such as mental health within the community, the different dimensions within a society such as individualism. And without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Uh, and yeah, we've got a special guest today. Uh, mind if you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name's Monique Tui. Um, I probably spend most of my time being a psychologist in yeah. my business, which is called Nasir Consulting Group out in Broadmeadows, and I've been doing that for 20 years. Yeah, 20 years of yeah. psychology. Experience. Yes. Wow. Wait. We're going to put that to caption. <laughs> I do it on my website. <laughs> um, personally, I don't really know the difference between ca- uh, psychology, a psychologist, a counsellor, yeah. a psychiatrist. To me, they're all the same thing, but just different name. Yeah. So is there like any differences? Any, any? Yeah, they're pretty major actually. So, and people, it's really, really common. People get them confused. Yeah. You know, and people will say um, psychologists or psychiatrists and so forth. And, and the roles are really, there's both clearly work in you know, um, mental health, and not all psychologists do work in mental health, because some can work in schools. Mm-hmm. But the main difference is a psychiatrist um, has a medical background first, mm-hmm. and then does additional studies in the area of psychiatry. And so in, in total, it's about 13 mm-hmm. years or something mm-hmm. worth of study. Like it's, yeah. in, it's an insane amount of study. But predominantly what they will do that I won't, and I'm a psychologist, yeah. um, and we do about six years of study in psychology, um, is that psychiatrists can prescribe medication um, to treat mental health issues, anxiety, depression, mm. schizophrenia, bipolar. Um, yeah, so so they so they can prescribe medication, and psychologists cannot prescribe medication because we don't have a medical background. Mm. So what do we then offer our clients mm. is psychological therapy. So different types of strategies and interventions um, that help them to cope with really normal problems right through to quite severe mental health issues. Mm. Um, a counsellor, um, look, uh, counsellors can have really variable qualifications, okay? So counsellors, um, you come out and do a 12-month online degree or a Cert four in counselling, um, and it's, you know, maybe between one and two years. Mm. Um, but there's there are some limitations on their practice, and you might find counsellors um, working out of, um, community organisations, local councils, youth groups, that type of thing. And then what we're seeing right now is a huge influx of life coaches mm. um, coming into the market. So heaps of... What do you think of that? Um, I think it's a, it's a different skill. And I think life coaching has, has a lot of really effective strategies. And, and it's very similar to an area in psychology um, which has sort of come out of sports psychology. Mm. So a lot of the coaching of elite athletes is really based, uh, is really flourished by a lot of life coaching, life principles. Mm. Um, so, but a sports psychologist will obviously predominantly work with athletes and elite athletes at that. Mm. Um, whereas life coaches are sort of working with anyone and everyone. Um, I think we've got to be really careful though, because life coaches will also be trained about what their limitations are in terms of who they can work with and the type of problems that they can um, competently work with. Mm. Uh, And I think that for community members, it's important for people to know what the differences are so that you're not going, for example, to a life coach to treat a severe mental health issue. Yeah. Um, You might be going to, you know, to um, 
be really clear and motivated about your study goals or about your career a career transition or um, you know boosting your self-esteem and you know finding worthiness and doing some vision work but they're not practitioners that treat mental health mm. yeah so um, they're around and even my even myself it, we're, we're trained that even practitioners they might specialize in a particular area and we've got limitations on our practice and we should be referring on to other people who are, who are you know experts or specialists in their field yeah. yeah so it's a bit of a minefield i think if you <laughs> you sort of think oh, i need some help in some area or i need a strategy but who do i go to yeah. so if you're going to a doctor and this is the thing about doctors right so doctors will often themselves do a lot of counseling of people with mental health issues and there's no stigma in seeing a doctor, is there? Mm. Like, mm. people just go there and go, I'm sick, I'm going to a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And when they get there, the doctor may well suggest for some people to go and see a psychologist predominantly. Mm. And if there's a really severe presentation of mental health issues, then then a psychiatrist might be a, um, a likely recommendation. And some people will have both a psychiatrist and a psychologist. That's not yeah. unheard of. Mm. And, and, and their GP. And you work as a multidisciplinary team to sort of support someone through it. Yeah. Just stopping on that question where you said that like there's a stigma with seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist rather than a doctor. Yeah. Where do you think that stigma like stems from and like why people can't speak about their mental health issues with psychologists and especially like within the Muslim community specifically as yeah. well? Yeah. Where like seeing a doctor or more so like how you said a psychologist like it's like you know this person's got problems why do they have problems? What do you think that stems from? Shame. Yeah. You know, I, I think we create shame because what we make is abnormal thinking and abnormal behaviours um, can bring shame for people. And yeah. I think when we we understand what normal behaviour is yeah. and normal relating and normal levels of feelings, and if someone is unable to be in what we call this, you know, normal space, if this, you know, there is such a thing, you know, yeah. if normal meaning sort of commonly, you know. Um, you know, things that we normal reactions to normal problems, but um, I think um, with shame, shame comes from like the idea that someone's deviating from a script, yeah. and it can be deviating from a script of normality. Yeah. But it can also be deviating from a religious script or yeah. a cultural script. Like, and so even people who just don't do something that's religious uh, sh can be shamed. Yeah. Now add on if that's that earns you the label of something um, under the category of a mental health issue. Mm. So, and difference, any type of difference, gets construed commonly across different societies as bad, and then if it, and difference can also be construed as evil. Mm. Right? So within, what, I mean, what psychologists will study, for example, is normal versus abnormal behaviour. How do we, what is abnormal behaviour? Mm. Yeah, and I think it's really. Shame exists in all the communities, and as a result of that, you get taboos. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the taboo is, you know, when people uh, are too afraid to come and see a psychologist. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting in the way that it affects the Muslim community in particular, and I'm talking about Australia as well, um, is there's not only just taboo in seeing a psychologist, there's taboo in being a psychologist. Yeah. So when I get interns come in my clinic and do their student placements or that type of thing, or I'm supervising them, I'll, I'll commonly say, what did your mum and dad say about you studying psychology? Mm -hmm. your choice. And the, and the really almost verbatim response is, why would you want to work with crazy people? 
Like that's the response. Mm -hmm. Like, and if you're going to do six years, you might as well, might as well be a doctor or a lawyer or mm -hmm. an engineer or a teacher. And anything with status, mm -hmm. like within the community, mm -hmm. as opposed to being a psych. But I've been a psych for a very long time, but and that's changing because the community members, including religious leaders, imams, um, now totally realise the, the intense need for psychologists within the community. Mm -hmm. You're a Muslim psychologist. And a Muslim psychologist, yeah. right? So, in other words, you're, you're, you are speaking fluent psychology, but you're also fluent Muslim. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so do you know what I mean by fluent Muslim, right? You, mm -hmm. I mean that you understand the layers and the interaction between someone's cultural background, as in their ethnic background, and Islam. Yeah. Mm. And able to differentiate that and work effectively with those layers and then bring in psychology. Yeah. yeah? And so a lot of people will come to me because I am a Muslim psychologist and they have they make an assumption that I get them. Yeah. And that when they um, start to disclose what they're there for, their, their personal problem, that they don't have to explain all the Islam and, mm. um, you know, all of the cultural The scripts. rules and regulations you have to follow. Yeah, yeah they don't have to, they, they make the assumption, I don't have to explain that, I can just get to the problem and I'm going to make an assumption that Monique will get it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. As when you were becoming a psychologist, did you face those type of problems as well? similar to those upcoming psychologists uh, who, who got asked by their parents why you become a psychologist why don't you um no because i'm a revert yeah. <laughs> so um so, and we want to dive into that as well yeah I, um no i didn't but what i did do as one of the first psychologists first muslim psychologists so there's a handful of us probably i was like number four in melbourne yeah. what um, four in melbourne as in number four so uh, 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 three other individuals registered Muslims registered as a psychologist. Female or males? Mix. Uh, okay. uh, so you could have been like the second female. So I wasn't. I was a third female. So there was a there's another brother who's was who's my, was my supervisor, and he was registered before me, and yeah. So there was four of us at the time, and you know now there's more, but still it's a, a huge need. Um, yeah. What was your question again? My question was like, did you also face those oh, similar yeah. problems? Mm. No. What I faced was being told. That studying psychology was haram. Okay. Oh my lord, that's a big statement. Yeah, it's a big statement. <laughs> was that, is that like from people higher up in the Muslim community? This is or? from religious leaders in the community that studying psychology was haram, right? And I went, mm hmm. And those very same leaders now refer to me. <laughs> and the very same leaders, that's now encourage their students to go and study psychology. Yeah. Right? Um, so sometimes you've got to perceivably buck the script yeah you're gonna buck the script right and challenge the script yeah if you can see what the community needs what instance do you think or what change in societal norms caused this need for an influx in psychological help and awareness and like just in general what what made mental health come to the forefront of society especially this day and age that's a beautiful question um you know, humans are pretty stereotypical mm -hmm. when it comes to experiencing stress. None of us break out into response if we're stressed, mm -hmm. right? What happens, you know, we can go into fight and flight, etc. So we think mental health is a new thing. It's not. Mm -hmm. Mental health has been here since the dawn of ages. Mm -hmm. We could safely say, you know, Adam and Howard had some, might have had some mental health challenges. Yeah. I would have had some mental health challenges had I been kicked out of Jannah. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously would that would have thrown me pops in, in perhaps into a depression for a fairly long time. Yeah. Right? So so because 
Adam and Howard weren't given any, you know, any particular parts of the body that we were not given. Mm. So their bodies were designed to react to stress in the exact same way that our bodies are designed to react to stress and also cope with stress. Mm. Because we have, I can give you an example, there's a lot of people in the older generation saying that it's social media that's thrown our whole world into a mental spiral, like everybody's looking at everybody, comparing themselves, and, and it's causing a lot of people to be distressed about their own situations, or to, you know, that whole comparison thing where they believe that my life isn't like this, so something's going wrong with my life, like, do you believe that also plays a part, or? Yeah, I just think, I think it's another stressor for people, hmm. but hey, I grew up pre-internet. Like my teenage years were pre-internet, and I would compare myself to the person sitting next to me in the class. So, like, we're born to differentiate, and mm. kids do it from when they're in, you know, almost from when they're four and five years old. Mm. He's taller. Why is that person large? Why is that person tall? Why? Why is it? You know, mm. what, um, <laughs> my, you know, younger, you know, daughter, you know, like really embarrassingly goes, "That man's very tall," you know, or "That woman's <laughs> very large," you know, and you're like, "Shh." You're bucking the script. Don't point out the difference, you know, but we're, we're totally designed to point out difference. Yeah. I think the biggest difference in terms of that we get the feeling that mental health is more of a problem than ever before is because there's mental health professionals talking about it. Like, as in, we're actually giving it words and labels and, and descriptions that we are all becoming familiar with. So the mental health literacy in our society is going up. So rather than... Um, clusters of random symptoms being explained away by other things, mm -hmm. okay, like traditional understandings of what particular clusters of symptoms mean. That now we've got other now we've got words like depression and anxiety mm. and stress, and because people can say that out loud, you think that man, I've had four people tell me this week that they're anxious. You know, and see how that see how it's different than saying, oh, I'm so stressed. Because mm. now now that you know, anxious is part of an anxiety possibly part of an anxiety disorder, and an anxiety disorder is part of a mental health issue. So now in your mind, you think it's more common. No, people are using better words. Mm. Like they're closer to the mark. Yeah. Mm. In my day, people used to go, oh, I'm so depressed. But they would use it casually and flippantly. Mm. They weren't telling you they've got depression. Mm. They're just, they were more saying, oh, I'm really stressed, but I'm low. Mm -hmm. But now people are careful using that term because people go, really? Oh, do you, are you all right? Yeah. Are, you, are you okay? Because so now people are taking that that comment way more seriously. Mm. Okay, even even flippant terms like oh, I'm so going to kill myself. And people are like, mate, you shouldn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take that really seriously. Mm. And I, like, are you all right? Mm. Are you just saying that? Like, so people are actually going, yeah. no, I'm going to take that seriously. And so people are now careful to go. Oh, I'm not going to say that out loud because <laughs> mm. I'm going to get all my friends ringing me. Mm. Um, and I think the other difference is that in a society like Australia, we're a very individualist society. And individualism does, unfortunately, has some consequences at a, at a societal level. And one of them is social isolation, mm. right? And, and social isolation is one of the number one, you know, not, not causes of depression, but it's a, a huge risk factor for depression. What if is you social isolation? Like, if you're alone, <coughs> you feel uh, alone. Yeah. Uh, so, um, like, phobia. Sorry, um, I just need you to just delve into the word individual society because I don't, I can't... Individualism. So, so societies can be categorised um, based on certain cultural dimensions, yep. right? And one of the most studied cultural dimensions is individualism and collectivism, right? So a country like Australia, the US, the UK, New Zealand, um, who am I missing? Yeah. Um, and some European countries are relatively high individualism, which is that as kids, 
you're sort of raised to be independent and and there's an, a sort of an acceptance that kids aren't going to live with you forever and they need to make up their own minds and parents parenting enables that mm-hmm. right like you're going to be kicked out of the nest eventually and off you go and fly mm-hmm. um, not to the point of disconnection but just not the tight knit society which represents collectivism so collectivism is when you're parented for interdependence not high independence okay so there's a higher reliance on other family members and as a result that fact kids don't necessarily move so far from the nest mm. you know or they stay in the nest with their parents and live in multi-generational households so if you look at it like this you know collectivism is like you know your hands locked together and you know it's and a family's really close-knit and that has both protective factors but also some risk factors so no society is free of of risk factors for mental health issues mm. right yeah. it's just which one are you going to get fair enough all right. Um, yeah, that's mm. like just thinking about it now. You can just you can see it because you, you you realize that because we all didn't. I think all our backgrounds, majority of us, are from collective. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah, so culture. Majority yeah. also are cultures all over the world. Yeah. Collectivist backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and but when when you're living in a country like Australia, you actually have access to two scripts. You've got access to what we call day culture and night culture. Mm. So day cultures, you go, you know, like all of us going to school and, and us interacting in the workplace and and just by default, of, you know, being raised here or, um, or and or born here, mm. you understand individualist scripts. Wow. But I'm just late. I'm just giving it a name, mm. right? I invent the name, but I'm giving it a name. Whereas at, at night culture, you know, that certain things have to change in terms of your respect for elders and, you know, and, and who you're giving salams to first or who gets served first, mm. or, you know, like a whole lot of little invisible scripts that are reflective of collectivism. And this is, you know, a good way to think about this is breakfast. Okay. So when I was in Turkey a couple of years ago, I was in a hotel and I was looking at the way people served themselves buffet breakfast. Yeah. Right. And so all the, like, heaps of white people, right, would go up, serve themselves, come back with their plate, right? You know, toast, your croissants, you know, whatever, your eggs, yeah. etc. And each member of the family would go up individually, serve themselves and come back and then eat together, yeah. right? But the collectivists, so a lot of the Chinese families that were in the restaurant, the Turkish families that are in the restaurant, one to two people were delegated to go and get all the food and they brought it back on little plates and everyone shared. Wow. See how different? And mm. that is a perfect example of how culture manifests itself on a plate. Yeah, uh, I like it. I like that. So thinking about it, yeah. Um, sorry, boys, if you just want to ask a question, just one more question. Yeah, go, go, go hard. I love um, this. Uh, I'm just enjoying I don't this. I don't want to say this. Is there difficulty? Do you see, like, because I can, I can foresee myself, us growing up in an individualistic society. So us growing up here in Australia, being born here, we're kind of accustomed to individual did that individual yep. yeah and then you got you got our parents who are pretty stuck in their their ways uh-huh. well i'm not saying my parents i love you mom and dad <laughs> but, um, so we got we got we got parents that are still stuck in those ways of the yep. collectivism um um do you foresee problems like you can see you can you can i think you can kind of like identify that there's going to be an issue with the kid because i think because growing up in Australia, the you come from? Growing up in Australia, you have different values and morals and ethics, and you've been raised differently to your parents, and then your parents mm-hmm. kind of see it as deviation from the right path. 
um, like, I don't know, what word of advice do you have for a kid who has parents who are stuck in collectivism mm. and they're very individualistic in, the, in their okay. own... Do you Ooh, firstly, <laughs> I think we've got to be careful about how we go stuck in collectivism. Mm-hmm. You've got to see it as a continuum, right? Yep. Now, either of us, I used to think that I was high individualist because I'm sixth generation Anglo-Celtic, you know, background, right? So I come from individualist society, individual, individual, mm. like, so yeah. I couldn't be much more individualism and being born and raised in Australia, yeah. okay? And then, but you can assess yourself on this, like you can go online and you can do a self-assessment on where you are on the continuum of individualism versus collectivism. Now, I've been Wilson for 25 years, so, and I was really sort of surprised to see that I was actually much more down the end of collectivism than I was individualism. Okay. So I could be a sixth generation, so we've got to be careful about, Mm. you know, you can be born and raised here and you could have a brother and one's really collectivist and one's a real individualist. So what causes that differentiation? This is the way we made personality, oh, character, personality, their their childhood experiences, mm. birth order. Okay. Yeah. So it's very it's it's, it's you can't generalize. Mm. No, say. right. So there's always more intra country differences, you know, than even comparing between cultural groups. Yeah. Yeah. But but what's interesting to go is coming back to your question. Migrant communities have negotiated that for millennia. Mm. Like you move, like even people who have migrated from you know Mecca to Medina, there are cultural differences there, and they're, but they they might be invisible to an outsider, but totally visible. Mm. And it's the same thing. Like we can, if you think about your family's countries of origin, mm-hmm. you can differentiate culture by the rural areas they <laughs> came from, city to rural exactly. areas, and yeah. you know, and even different even different groups within that, or tribes, or you know, different groups. And so you can say, oh, I'm Somali or, you know, even I can go, we're from Melbourne. What does that mean? Yeah. I'm oh, not from Sydney, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, so we know what that means. Like, what do you reckon that means? What, what's associated with being from Melbourne? Are you, apparently there's some sort of, um, like, characteristic that, Separate someone from Sydney from Melbourne, for yeah. example. Yeah, totally. But then it's just generalization in, in 100%, that. 100%. Right. Do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah. So, but here's the thing like, um, in Quran, it says, um, you know, like, I've created you in nations and tribes so that you may get to know each other. Mm. Yeah. Not to bitch and moan. Pretty not much. to complain. Not mm. to gossip. Not to fight. No. You know, and, and not to think that one is superior over the other. They're just different. Mm. They're just different. So, when you're going, how do we get out, you know, parents that are stuck in collectivism? Yeah, and? Yeah. Great, because we need collectivists in society. Because yeah. God forbid we live in a, a country where there's all individualists yeah. who only give a crap about themselves. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that. Okay. So, like, the exact point. There's some families, there's some kids, like, I couldn't fathom putting my parents in an aged care home. But some people, they leave the house at 18, yeah. they reach 35, 36, dad's at 68. So like, you know what, Dad? Uh, I'll just chuck in there. It's better for you. And he generally feels like it's the right thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Why? Because that's the way he's. That's the way he is. Totally. Exactly. And for me, I'm like, that is what? That is ridiculous. What? Get out of here. No way. That's a separateness. Yeah. Yeah. So individualism is like. Um, characterized like this the mother bird kicks her baby birds out of the nest before they're ready to fly and says, "Off you go." Mm. Like mm. my job is done. Mm. Right? Yep. And the collectivist nest is a little bit different. Mm. 
you're ready to fly, bring the bring your partner home, have kids, and you're still and we're still all in the nest, but Jade's squashy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And because of and because no one's leaving, it can give rise to conflict, right? Mm. Whereas if people are leaving the nest, like all the kids, you know, fly the coop and, mm. and mom and dad are at home, then they they can experience loneliness. Yeah. Right. Maybe they're experiencing freedom and having the time of their lives, but you know, um, and miss you guys, but. Yeah. So you can sort of see yeah. one is not better than the other. Yeah. Now, does this disadvantage young people who are from bicultural backgrounds? When I say bicultural, as in you've got a particular cultural background, it could be tricultural, multicultural, mm. because of the mixes, and and then living in a country that is, has predominantly individualist scripts, yeah. except for indigenous culture. Indigenous culture is absolutely collectivist scripts. Yeah. So you see how, like, even this is such a big issue, mm. um, and I'll bring it back to mental health, right? Mm. Because we assume that. Um, when you're counselling someone, the mm. depression should look the same in people from all cultural backgrounds. Oh, okay. okay. Now, partly that assumption's true, but is the treatment of people with depression from different cultural backgrounds, does that need to be adjusted or modified? Taking into consideration where they sit on all these different cultural, men- cultural dimensions, and I've only given you one, and there's six. So true. Yeah. Do you believe that? Sorry, but go for it. Legendary's got a question. Go for it. Oh, I had I, more of a point um, with the whole collectivism and the individual that you're saying. But you know how the whole idea of that you said there's two types and sometimes that they can work? Can there be situations where they completely cannot work? Like, for example, think of it like I know as a Somali coming from Somalia, everyone works in families and groups. Like, you have like three generations living in one house and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Then you come to a country like Australia where. Um, leaving the house or becoming an individual at the age of 18 is like such a big thing, do you know what I mean? You should be not completely dependent on your parents, but you should be dependent on yourself that you can provide to your parents and it becomes a taboo to be doing stuff on your own. Um, and as a result, that can cause that like that friction, do you know what I mean? Because just like Upshift said where his dad, he sees it from that complete collectivism mentality yeah. and then you see it because being a bicultural person, yeah. see it from both ideologies. Totally. Yeah. Do you reckon? Okay. This is the beauty of living in a multicultural society that yeah. says there are more than one ways to live. Yeah. And and I think that people hold very tightly that their script is the right script, the only script, the best script. Mm. And it's called ethnocentrism. Right? <laughs> That's view, a word. So ethnocentrism is the view that your way is the best way and that another way is not the best way and by default not a good way. Mm. Right? That's rubbish. Yeah. It's total rubbish. Okay. So, other created us in nations and tribes so that we may get to know each other. And do what? Share scripts. Share scripts. And therefore, but what, what psychological stuff then comes up for the human condition? It means that we're going to be put in situations where people feel uncomfortable and have to cope with that discomfort. Okay? Mm-hmm. And if they don't, then if they don't do that discomfort well, it can give rise to racism. It can give rise, you know, to that feeling that I'm be- I'm better than you, and therefore I can treat you badly because you're different. Different equals bad. Different equals evil. Mm-hmm. And I'm good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, since you deal with a lot of, uh, I'm assuming young adults, and like, is that like uh, that confusion of, okay, I'm a twenty-two-year-old male I want to move out and live on my own but at the same time 
mum and dad expect me to stay at home and provide for them. Like as in, and help out with A, B, and C, and D. So I'm I'm torn in uh, I'm torn between those two worlds. I don't know what to do. Am I doing wrong by myself, uh, or am I doing wrong by doing that to them? I don't know. There's a lot of. Is that like a big reasoning to why a lot of no? Is that is that is that like a? I'm wording very terribly. Is that like a key thing that twenty-two year olds or young adults or come to you yeah, with? Sure. Yeah, I say it all the time. Um, and how do you and what do you say to them um, well firstly a, a counsellor has to understand the diverse scripts yeah and this is this is so part of the problem is when people go to um, from diverse you know backgrounds mm. go to for example um, an Anglo-Saxon counsellor mm. who has no idea of your cultural background yeah and then will project to go why, why can't you leave what's wrong with that yeah, and, and then sort of push you down a line of individualism because, yeah, but a yeah. good counsellor will sort of try and understand, well, what's the script? What's the, where, what are the scripts? What's the norm? No, what's the scripts? Because there's a norm, for example, in like one culture or one family yeah. even, right? And there's a norm that the person might be living in. Mm. And even then, it's just diverse cultural scripts. And I think that as communities, it's really struck me. I've been thinking about this a lot just recently around, um, you know, this, this issue comes up so often, particularly when people are interested in marrying someone from a different culture. Oh, yeah. Another topic, right? That's another <laughs> session. That is a Someone got jade. Does that mean we're getting another session? Okay. That means we're getting another session. All right. <laughs> Three-hour podcast coming up, guys. <laughs> it's never going to end. I love it. Yeah, but, but this is a big issue because what people are going is that this person, you know, this prospective spouse from this other family, from this, you know, or from a you know, different you know, region or, or whatever it might be, is somehow not going to fit in with us because they're going to be different. Why can't we get better at doing difference? Like, a difference is about psychological flexibility, not psychological rigidity. Stay the same, stay the same, stay the same. And we have the same conversation between baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, and whatever the next one is. <laughs> what is it? Millennials. Millennials. And, and so we have the same thing because even the cultural scripts between generations are still going to be different. So what is a, what is a, is a Gen X lev different to a millennial lev? Yes, they're going to be. <laughs> they're going to be. 100%. You know, so, so, and, and employers are forced to not... Um, expect that millennials, for example, are going to work in exactly the same way as Gen X, and that, and if they do, their businesses will fall over. So they have to, everyone, people have to move. Like changes, changes are constant, but culture is relatively stable over time. And individuals in families sometimes have to make hard decisions to do to buck the cultural script. But that doesn't mean they're bucking a religious script. Mm. And, and so you, sometimes with Muslims, you can have client, uh, conversations around, are you bucking a religious script or a cultural script? Because if you're bucking cultural script, you've got r- more room for movement. There could be consequences in your family for bucking the script. But honestly, I see that that's good for society. Yeah. You can so influence. it's good for society if a family member marries outside, you know, of their cultural background. Because what it does is give permission for everyone in that, in that community to go, well, they did it. It worked. And it worked. Mm. But in, I think in one generation prior, what happens is if a, a couple doesn't work out, 
what do you think gets blamed? The other culture. Yeah, I oh, see. I told you so. Because they they married outside the community, you know, or outside our, you know, whatever our, our nationality. What a load of rubbish! Marriages don't fall over just because um, the person's from a different ethnic background. Mm. There's a thousand reasons, and as and if that were true, people from the same ethnic background wouldn't be getting a divorce, would they? But they are. Mm-hmm. I have one quick question on the topic of difference. Just before I leave, I've been dying to ask this question. Um, just on the topic of toxic masculinity, does that affect your work in any way possible? In any sort of way? I know it's like a loaded question. Toxic masculinity. Yeah, I, I, think, I Whoa. think it can in terms of who I see in the yeah. clinic, right? Or more accurately, who I don't see yeah. in the clinic. So who do you reckon I don't see in my clinic? What are doing, cuz? And what age group do you reckon they may not be coming? What age group? 15 to 25. 15 to 25. No, I say 18 to 25. What were you saying? 15 to 25. No, say 18 to 28. 18 to 30. Okay. What do you say? 18 to 25. Teenage years. Yep, 15 plus. Okay. You're all right, right? But it's actually much broader than that. And, and what's interesting is that I've never in the last probably three to four years in my clinic seen so many young people in young men in that demographic than I have before so there are so many young men in that exact demographic that you mentioned like Mm. that 13 firstly if kids are in that sort of that early adolescence I'm getting mums and dads bringing in their young um, male teenager right so anywhere from sort of 10 to 16 right because they want to nick problems in the butt before, you know, this kid gets in, you know, gets expelled or, or too late they are expelled and wants to get them back into school or stop them getting into trouble, right? So they're trying to nick problems early because they don't want it to become a big issue when they're an adult. And so you see that. So that's a shift in parenting. Like parents going, I don't care. Yeah, I'm taking my kid to a psychologist. Yeah, and? So, yeah. So really pushing and bucking the script that, yeah, and? There's nothing wrong with my kid, but he needs strategy right now. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he needs someone to talk to, and it can't be us. Mm. Yeah, like, because we've tried, right? Um, and so it's like, here you go. <laughs> yeah, we brought our 16-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I reluctant. I saw one today, and I said to the mum, it was, I think it was my first client, 9.15, get a 16-year-old out of bed on, a, you know, on school holidays, and he rocks up with his mum in my clinic. And, and I said to the mum, does he want to be here? You know, because you never know. <laughs> yeah. And um, and she's like, yeah, actually, yeah, he said he does. Um, you know, now this kid's, you know, been using cannabis almost every day for the last four years. How old is he, 16? 16. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. I didn't know what it was, um, 16. <laughs> do you, um, oh, I was way older when I knew about it. <laughs> In that case, do you, ca- um, not ca- I can't say counsel, but do you treat both the child and the, mo- and the parent? Okay. So, so pretty in the same room. Uh, yeah, good question. Um, it sort of depends on when and how they come in. Or oh, is it the relationship between so, them? So depending on the age of the child, um, or teenager for that matter, um, mm. often my preference is to see a parent first, but depending on the age of the child. It is unusual that I'll see a parent a parent of a 16-year-old, but often I'll, I'll allow it. Mm. Um, to, because parents will just... Put this is everything that's happening with this child and, and I will do that never in the room of a young person mm. okay? because to have a parent 
sit there, like you can imagine, right? Your mum's sitting next to you. I'm giving it to me. you in and you're going to absolutely, like, oh. sh- like shred you to bits, yeah. saying, telling oh. everything that's embarrassing about you, like everything that you've done and you, your head will be, you know, almost in your lap from shame. Mm. So I never allow that to happen mm. because parents can't help themselves. They think they're being helpful. Mm. She just needs to know everything. No, she doesn't. <laughs> Not in front of the kid because that's, that's humiliating, right? So mm. I'll often say... I'm going to take you in my counselling room for the first 5 to 10, 15 minutes and see what's going on. And in that way, I actually work out whether the problem lies with the parent or whether the problem lies in with the kid. Uh, That's a good one. Because what happens is parents will say, here's my kid, fix them. But actually, most of the intervention and the work and the investment of my time is going to be way more beneficial with the parent. Because the parent's with the kid way more than I ever am. Uh So sometimes bringing a kid to me for one hour a one hour session even so often. It's only so much I can do if the system of the family uh. is dysfunctional, chaotic, abusive. Uh. There's only so much I can do. Like I'm not a miracle worker. Uh. And then what then sometimes if I realise there's a system issue, uh. I will suggest to the mum to either uh, to go into counselling, but it may not be me. It could be with another counsellor. Uh. And then I'll bring the young person in. Yeah. Now if they're older than sixteen and they're an adult, I have to say I've had nineteen year olds being yeah. brought in by their mother. Yeah. Like literally I'm coming in to tell you what's wrong with my nineteen year old son. Mm. Um and I can only empathise for the but you know, that's it is what it is. Mm. That's our cultural backgrounds. When you're getting collectivism, there's no the mum hasn't separated from her nineteen year old. She feels like she has every right to be in that room and's gonna help and the nineteen year old's dying inside. <laughs> okay, out of embarrassment. But allows it. But allows it. Because it's the norm for him. No, because he respects his mother. Yeah. And, you know, and he doesn't want to disappoint or anger or... All that. You know, or he wants, to, he wants some help and he knows that this is the process. But outside of that first session, then I'm seeing, you know, young adults alone. Where does toxic masculinity come in just... It comes in because the cohort that I definitely very rarely see, particularly within the Muslim community, is probably actually above 30. Young people's mental health literacy is really good. Um, you'd be rare to go to a school where there's not a school counsellor these days and where you haven't seen a Beyond Blue campaign, mm. you know, or some or headspace or something. So you're sort of familiar with it. Um, it doesn't mean you want to be there, but most young people that I counsel, mm. you know, they come in, in, in an ambivalent way because they don't know what it is. Mm. Um, and then really, find out. if you're an awesome counsellor, yeah. they'll come back. If you're not, they won't. Mm. Talking about um, the... Okay. Yeah. Just on that toxic masculinity and gender question. Yeah. So, you, like, you surprised me when you said the fact that like younger guys actually open up, like, to the point they do. Yeah. Um, what would you say? You know how the stigma is surrounding that girls are a bit more emotional than guys. Would you say that that is technically true in the field that you do work in? That girls will open up more. Um, girls. Yeah, absolutely. Not only are there more women in the profession, mm. right? Um, but I definitely think that a very common primary coping mechanism for women is talking through their problems. Sorry, I don't have a main number for a See, it's Rossi. trying to get on the podcast too. <laughs> Steve Jobs, you thought. <laughs> yeah. Now, does that mean men are not going to benefit from counselling? Yep, sometimes that's exactly true. So, we need to think, I think, as communities but also society to think about alternate ways that are non-talk therapy for guys who just may not want to be there but does that mean that guys won't benefit if they come not at all just sometimes men are a little bit more give me a strategy thanks i'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm done never seen me yet 
and I'm just presuming it worked. Yeah. Um, whereas women want to, they'll talk through lots of lots of details, but that doesn't. I also have young men who do exactly the same yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah, it really depends on the issue. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I asked before um, the podcast started: that Do men and do women do emotion better than women men? I'll reframe that question for yeah. you. <laughs> Terrible. I'm just, I just want to hear her talk. I don't know how to talk. You should have wrote it down, bro. Uh, question being... In, in relationships do, as well. Do men and women do emotion different? Do men and women do emotion differently? I think that's a good question. Yeah, so particularly in relationships. How's that? Well, we're or, always in relationship with people, right? Yeah. So it doesn't mean we're in a relationship, but we're yeah. in relationship to people. to people. Yeah. Okay, unless you're born in a cave and live there. Mm. Yeah. Um, which would be good. Uh, so you're always in relationships. So, um, yeah, they, there's. Um, I went to this workshop a few years ago. It was run by a doctor, and he held up two fMRIs of the brain, right? So pictures of the brain, like an X-ray for the brain, right? And they're lit up in different areas. And and he says to the audience, um, one of these brains is brains is a woman's brain when she is in the emotion sadness. And he flicked up the other one and he said, and that is a man's brain. Um, sorry, and the other one is a man's brain when he is in the emotion sadness. Right? And he didn't point to it, and he's like, which one's which? Now, one was lit up in about seven areas right. and one was lit up in three. So whose is who? So who's, whose brain is lit up in seven areas when they're in the emotion sadness? Guessing women. Yes. 100% right, Why which is, is 50% more than what a man's brain lights up and gets activated when experiencing the emotion sadness, right? Could that differ in yes. from man to man? Of, of course. Yeah. So, they're, they're of course, and same with women, right? Mm-hmm. But in general, there are some physiological differences that are also influenced by, say, testosterone in men or estrogen in women. There's differences in the way that brains develop based on those two chemicals, mm-hmm. right? So even from childhood, um, when a little boy's, like an infant boy's brain, you know, develops, because of testosterone, the synapses, the dendrites, they, they grow at a slower pace and, and they don't grow long. So what you get is when the brain is developing all these brain connections, rather than you get what's called specialization and localization, which means there's an um, excessive amount of neural activity going on in the right hemisphere of the brain. The men. And that controls. Right. Things like spatial ability, that type of thing, right? Yeah. But now that doesn't mean that half your brain is full and half is empty. Yeah. Some might have an opinion, <laughs> but no science differs. Um, whereas in with what estrogen does in infant girls is it lengthens the neurons. So girls have a more even spread across both hemispheres. So would that, that, that alone could explain why in, in sadness, if there's sort of an equal distribution of neurons up in the brain and connections, that, that could explain why women access mm. and experience sadness either more intensely, mm. but also that um, women have more of a connection between language and emotion. Mm. So coming back to that question before, do women sort of access or benefit from counselling more than men? Well, if women can access what they're feeling when they're feeling it and can access language, they therefore want to talk about it. Mm. But So what happens in men then? It doesn't mean that men are devoid of the emotion of sadness, but it can mean that it, it can be experienced in the body, but not necessarily languaged. 
yeah, expressed. Yeah. yeah. So that could, and so there's two things. One is you're going to get a guy who knows exactly what he's feeling. He's not prepared to say it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about experiencing a sensation in your body and going, I don't what really. the frick is happening in my body? I don't know. And that's it. Well, let me swallow it. Mm. You know, or let me externalize it. You know, or... Man up. That's what we hear a lot, huh? Yeah. yeah Suck it up. Yeah. Suck it up. Move yeah. on. And then, and then things like any... Then you've got the, the social scripts that then influence them also the way men and women experience emotion. Yeah. That totally screws people up. Sure. Mm. For, for both. Yeah. 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 And there's always exceptions to, exceptions to the rule. So, yeah, there are some differences between men and women, but, you know... The vast... Is it um, a very massive difference? One of the differences um, that I find really fascinating is the way um, that men and women do anger, for mm. example. And when you're looking at relationships, this is a bit. This can be a bit of an issue. Yeah. You don't actually understand that there can that there are physiological differences. Mm. Um, so when, for example, any of us feel that we're threatened, and it could be psychologically threatened, emotionally threatened, or actually physically threatened by something, that um, you're you know, your brain detects the threat and it sort of very quickly assesses how dangerous is this for you. Mm. Now, it could just be someone, you know, yelling at you or calling you a name or you've just got disappointed and the disappointment in itself is being, you know, unhelpfully interpreted as a threat. You know, someone said no to you. You're like, what? Someone cut you off in the car. You know, you forgot your homework, <laughs> right? So the brain will go threat, 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 threat. And when that's happening, if you're getting, if you go into threat mode, that your frontal lobe here, which is responsible for things like um, rational thought, um, a clock, like manners, speech, politeness, yeah. empathy, sorry, that gets, goes onto standby or goes offline. But amygdala, which is sort of responsible for fight, flight, freeze, goes into fire, comes into action, mm. so that then we're responding basically going, okay, we're going into flight, we're avoiding a situation, shutting down, switching off, um, going to sleep, um, not talking, that type of thing. Panicking. Yeah, and and sort of a lot of internalising-like symptoms. So if you're internalising, like you think you're avoiding a situation, but your body's still being flooded, you know, things like anxiety, depression can come up if you keep going into that. Or you're going into fight mode, partly that's self-explanatory. Yeah. So, you know, you're arcing up over something or you're raising your voice or, um, you know, you're getting adrenaline rushed down your arms and clenching your fists mm. and that type of thing because that's what that response is, is. It's a manifestation of adrenaline in your hands. Or you're thinking, oh, my God, what are my options and what, am I, you know, what do I need to do here to get out of this situation? And that's cortisol in your body. Mm. So when you're in those threat modes, your body's trying to keep you safe, but it doesn't mean you're rational. And unfortunately, your frontal lobe goes offline if you're in a relationship. It puts you in this really vulnerable space where you can say and do stuff you're going to regret later. Right? Because amygdala doesn't care about being polite. Amygdala does not care about connection. It cares only about you and keeping you safe and alive. So when you've calmed down, right, when the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, floods your body with some calm down chemicals, you know, serotonin, maybe oxytocin, dopamine, and you calm down and frontal lobe comes back in action. It's sort of like, oh my God, what did I say? 
what did I do? <laughs> Why didn't I say something? Mm. Do you ever get that? You, you always get really like, oh my later. god, <laughs> I should have said that. Yeah. Yeah. Your brain's your brain is in shutdown mode. That's your frontal lobe offline, or you're in freeze mode, and, and so language is irrelevant if you feel threatened. Mm. Your ability to defend yourself, run, or stay very still so the tiger doesn't eat you is crucial. Okay. Right now, play that out in a relationship. Yeah. Two people. Okay, so let's go. You and Mum. Right. <laughs> Still love you, Mum. You and Mum. You know, like something happens, and you know, uh, let me think. Uh, I don't know. You give me a scenario, and I'll talk okay. about it. We'll play on what you said from before. Say, for example, you want to marry someone, and she doesn't agree. It's the best thing for you. Similar culture, blah blah. She says something that affects you. I don't know. Go from there. Right. You don't know because your brain's already shut down at that point. Right? <laughs> so I'm totally offline, and now it's you know I'm going to go to my you know bedroom and slam the door because mm. you're so frustrated. You know, um, or worse, I'm going to jump in my car and you know use let my foot express my stress, which won't doesn't end up well. Um, you know, so what can you do? Well, this is the thing about resolving conflict is understanding what conflict is actually doing in your body. That anger isn't a personality issue. So people go, oh, I'm just angry, that's why I am. That's the biggest load of bull, you know what? Yeah. Right? That is an absolute cop-out. No, you're angry because you're human. You're angry because you perceive there's an injustice in your life and your body is doing what it's going to do. Your expression of anger, though, could be totally normal, totally appropriate, or it could be really over the top and insane, crazy. Right? Um, so what are you responsible for? You're responsible for calm in your arm. Get, you know, like calm down. So when you're trying to resolve discussions like that, the only way to really come up with a solution is for you to be in a conversation with someone when you're calm. So there is absolute merit in doing things like time out. If you're, if you're butting heads with someone, is time out. Time out yourself, or sometimes you've got to time out another person. I don't recommend you time out your mum. That won't end well. <laughs> Time out the house. Time out another house. Go see that. So, no. But what you can do is you can go. I can see this conversation's getting a bit over the top, and so I don't say anything I regret. I am leaving this conversation. Let us come back to it later. Mm. When I am calm, and really, I mean, when I and you, when I and you are calm, yeah. right? Because both two, two parties have to calm themselves down. So if you're in a relationship with someone, the best thing is to talk about this beforehand and to say, let's have a safety word. Like if we get pissed with each other or there's a little disagreement that you know, you activate a timeout. And it doesn't mean like timeout, like a, like a hand palm, like timeout as in bugger off. I don't want to talk to you yeah. and I don't want to listen to you because yeah. that's rude. But a timeout is in you find a safety word, you know, and it, you know, it could be... Pineapples. Correct. I do use pineapples all the time. I was thinking about She's that. pineapples. Yeah, well. watermelon. Right. So some random word that doesn't yeah. mean nothing. Yeah. And you go, like, I said it first. <laughs> like, pineapples, I said it first. Like, I'm off ground. Yeah. Like, off, off ground tiki, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm off ground. You can't, you can't that, touch on oh. you know, barley's. Yeah. Okay. But what that does is that Barley's protects it. the relationship yeah. by doing that. But if you don't come back to the conversation later, then one person might be alienated, like, oh, you keep time out in me. Wow. So, so to have a conversation and come to some resolution is 
is doing it as calmly as possible. And if you can feel yourself getting triggered, um, then one is understand what your triggers are. Mm. And I think what happens is that when we're faced, coming back to the sort of the cross-cultural and intercultural stuff, is that you get angry because it's a total injustice when, and I say it's an injustice that's based, like that has basis in Islam, that we should not be discriminating based on someone's ethnicity or, you know, religion, um, or some type of difference based on this idea that we're better than them. Mm. And it's, it's, an unju- it's, a, it's total injustice. So it's really hard, I think, for young people to have conversations around marrying someone, for example, outside their community with family, um, when, when, it's, when the script is only based on, but this is what we do around here. Mm. And you're like, that's not good enough, give me a better answer. Mm. I have a question. Might, it's not so far diverted from the topic that we're on now. It's more so to do with trauma. So I know we're talking about the amygdala, and I know a big part to play on the amygdala's function is trauma in itself. I want to I want to see what your definition of trauma is, and I know it's a, it's a big trigger word for people because it kind of gives power to if there's somebody else involved, gives power to that person. I'll I'll just let you yeah, sure. develop on that. Oh, I think so. The human condition is that we have been designed um, to cope with stress, but what is abnormal is not that we will experience trauma in fact islamically we're told that we're going to get trauma like we'll be traumatized mm. there, there, there will be we'll be tested with adversities that will be traumatic and that's a bit of a heads up mm. like heads up when you live and when you start breathing mm. what bits and pieces of life could be traumatic and so like imagine getting a heads up it's a bit like you know your gps telling you there's cops up the road you slow down yeah right and so when when allah gives us heads up that there's possibly going to be adversities in our path what he's really saying is like be prepared become resilient be stronger you know like develop strength and that doesn't mean like be stronger ignore everything that's happening to you but find ways to empower yourself and understand who you actually are and the idea um, of being resilient is understanding that we've been given many 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 resources already we've inherited them and we're encultured into them um, strengths, like strengths like characteristics, like creativity or um, foresight or being organised or being friendly, being polite, being humble, being patient, like all of those different characteristics. And they all help us to cope with problems. But if you don't know what your resources are, then you, th- you can feel pretty helpless. So the difference between stress and trauma is stress is sort of like it's an everyday thing and not all stress is bad so you could move house and move into a house that you have been dreaming of and it's still really stressful because you're now living in a new location and just the move itself is really stressful and you know and, and adjusting to a new environment will stress the body is it bad stress no but it's stress nonetheless you can get the job of your dreams and you will be stressed in getting the job of your dreams because you will want to perform. Mm-hmm. Okay? But trauma is a little bit different. Trauma is something where you experience something that is abnormal in everyone's daily life. So, And because of the abnormality and usually the shock of experiencing the trauma, you know, like unexpectedly having a car crash, it's traumatic because it gets defined as traumatic because it represents a really big threat to our existence. 
So moving house is not traumatic. Being forced to flee your home because someone's shooting at you is really traumatic. Yeah. Right? So one is stressful, one is really traumatic. Yeah. You know, people move all the time. People don't get shot at all the time, well, not in all countries. Yeah. Um, you can be desensitised de to really big things. Um, and trauma is something, you've got to see it like it's a scar on your brain. Like a scar on your brain. So what happens is new neurons form and says, geez, that situation was stressful. Let's pay attention to that. Okay? So like, have you ever been in like anything and something and like you've replayed it over and over again? Mm. Like it's like really unexpected. A Even if it was a near miss. A car accident. When yeah. you're in a car accident, each time you get behind the wheel, the first couple of times you just replay in your mind the exact moment. Yeah. The yep, exact moment, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you may not even remember all of those moments. Yeah. Because in that moment when you're about to hit, you, there's parts of your brain that totally take over. And what they do is they try to make the best decision for your body at the time. Okay? They try, so different parts of the brain analyze that situation in such a split second mm. that you will without conscious thought, position your body, tense, relax, turn, to avoid the trauma if you saw it coming, right? Yeah. But if you didn't see it coming, sure. then that's a different part of the trauma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then you replay and replay. And the way that anything that shocks the brain, the brain replays. Yep. Because it wants to understand the different angles of the trauma so as to minimise the possibility that you're going to be in a trauma again. So that replaying and replaying is actually a survival mechanism, but it's really unhelpful at 3 a.m. in the morning when you're trying to sleep. Oh, this is amazing. So, so you were talking about the scars on your brain. Yeah. For example, like something happened to you in the past, and then whenever you're in a similar situation, you start to feel that same urge, like it's going to reoccur, and you start to generalize in some instances. For example, if it's involving another human being, you start to generalize that every human being that's in a similar situation with you is going to end up causing that same pain, or is going to end up doing that same thing that had occurred and caused you the pain in the last yep. situation. So, um, what effects do trauma have on your conscious and subconscious state? So, for example, like. Um, we know that sometimes you react in a way, like you said, the scars are there and your amygdala works yeah. to save you and whatever. Um, so, like, how deep is this connection? And can you reverse the effects of trauma? Neurologically, obviously. Look, um, I'll, I'll stick with the last, the last part of that question is, is sort of like, can you reverse it? Part, part of the answer is how quickly people get on to treating it, mm. like to working through and processing the trauma with probably a qualified professional um, because it's very hard to work on trauma yourself. You can have strategies, like you could totally turn to Quran and Sunnah to cope with the trauma, but it would depend on the, the severity of the trauma and your history, like when the trauma has come in your life. So you could, you know, if you look back, okay, this happens to old people, just warning you, but yeah, when you're young, you're really quite resilient because you haven't built up lots and lots of experiences that have been traumatic. Mm. So you can sort of, young people have a, a really good ability to just let stuff go, depending on depending on the trauma. Now a child could be really traumatized by something that happens early in childhood, and unfortunately, what happens is the brain wires around that trauma and says this really horrible thing happened to us in childhood, and um, your brain goes, I'm gonna try and keep you safe until the day you die, and will wire your brain in a way that you do not realize. Yeah. So it could be 
you become guarded around certain people. You know, it could be, for example, you got bit by a dog when you were three years old, and now you hate dogs. And now every time you see a dog, your, your brain starts sending messages that make your heart beat so fast you feel sick every time you're around a dog, and now you have a phobia. And that phobia, from a psychological point of view, is in one way protecting you, but it's also disabling you too, um, if you live in a society where dogs walk around. Mm. Because now it's gonna make you think about whether you can go jogging at night, because God forbid there might be a dog there. Okay? Or I'm not gonna go to that person's house because they have a dog. Okay? But, and that's just a really light example, but things like car crashes, you know, people stop driving. Mm. And it really takes them a lot of courage to get back in their car and drive again. Yeah. And it really depends on someone's history. Yeah. Can it be rewritten? Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of different um, interventions. So, so lots of different psychological interventions for trauma. A lot of it is very, very effective. A lot of it is effective if people see a psychologist very quickly after the trauma to prevent rehearsal, right? Or, or to start mucking around. Because as soon as... Um, you go through something pretty intense. So for example, a few years ago, I don't know if you witnessed this, do you, witness, do you remember witnessing my crash in Penang on the parasail? Yes. Do you remember? Um, was there a video of it? Yeah, there was a video yeah, of it. Yeah, I remember I'm that. glad you didn't go viral. We went to Malaysia together. <laughs> I mean, so, so I was going and I was um, about to go up in a parasail. Hmm. You know what that is, yeah? You're about to be dragged along the beach. The boat, you meant to, you meant to yeah, fly up into the air with a parachute behind you yeah. and then sail around, you know, being, you know, being pulled by a ski boat or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. The instructor gave me the instructions so quickly and then I could see the rope that I was attached to being pulled. Already? Already, before I had the instructions in my head. And all I remember him saying was, hold these ropes. And I did, but I was holding the wrong ropes. I was holding, holding the ropes that kept the parachute down, not up. And within seconds, I was bouncing along the water like throwing a pebble across a pond. Right? So when this... <laughs> and witnessed by that. I, I'm <laughs> laughing, obviously. No. Yeah, we can laugh about it now. I came out with a bruise and unscathed and I thought I was fine. But what happened to me in that moment was um, my brain slowed everything down. Right? Mm. In order to process and make the best decisions to keep me alive. Yeah. So as I'm being pulled, and as soon as I hit the water, I bounced a few times literally on the water, thankfully on my side. Um, and then the last pull was when I got pulled into a wave so I could see the wave coming. I can still see, even to this day, yeah. the wave coming right at my face. Mm. And I remember dipping my head down, knowing that if I hit it here, that it was going to do less damage than hitting it here in the softer part. Now, did I think that consciously? No. no. But do I? Am I analysing it now? Mm. Yep. So my body was keeping me alive. It saved you from my car crash. Yeah. Uh. So you make these little adjustments because your brain goes, "I know how to keep you alive." Mm. Um, so let's try. And then I was take, dragged deep under the water. Right. I'm a good swimmer, so I'm not afraid of water. Okay, good. And when I'm <laughs> about twenty meters under the water. I'm like, my th I can hear my thinking. I'm being dragged under the water right now. This is a bit of a problem. I can hear my thinking right? as I'm being dragged. Now, this is all happening within probably five seconds. And I'm being dragged under. And then within a next second, my body was released so that they've cut the rope because I was under, right? Or they've come back around, like as in the boat's done a Yui, 
and the, the rope has released. And as soon as it released, I went, I'm cool. Because, and then I looked up and about two stories above me was the surface of the water. And I was, I had a life jacket on, so I'm staring up at the water and I can see the sun shining on the water. Mm. And I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to float right up. I'm a good swimmer, so I have no fear about being underwater. And I'm like, duh, 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 swim, 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 swim. And then duh, I was above the water. Uh, survived. Right? Done. Yeah, totally. So, this is life? Yeah. Oh my <laughs> was it, was it like all like someone, a rush in like one there second? There was so much going on. Like, because it was in five seconds, you're obviously not watching her go, but then everyone screams and then you turn around and you just see it. It's like, yeah. whoa, what just happened? Everyone just worrying. I'll, I'll, I'll be the whole Yeah. So, now, that was that. So, you can see. So, my body's doing what it needs to do to keep me alive, yeah. right? My legs became like jelly because I my whole body had been flooded with adrenaline. Mm. Okay. Um... I was totally conscious. I'll have to lie. There was really nothing wrong. I had a little bit of a headache because I smacked the water. Mm. Water's like concrete when you smack it, so mm. I had to lie, nothing there. Um, and, and a bruise to tell the story. Um, but outside of that, you know, like, then it was more the psychology. So for the next two nights, I dreamt of being underwater. Mm. Right? Yeah, Damn. so I was having, my brain was doing flashback. Yeah, and that's what happens when you get shocked. Your brain can do flashback mode. And so every time I was in the dream, and I was under the water, or the wave coming towards me, which mm. is what I was flashbacking, that I'm like, I'm having a flashback right now. This is fascinating. See, that's the psychologist comes you out. You found it interesting. Oh, totally. Yeah, oh, scared. so you already psychologist dead 100%. Yeah. Oh, see so you. Just you just have like, three oh. like, would all be trauma? Would we be able to sleep? Just analyzing it. So my brain's doing this now. Oh, look, look. But think of it. Imagine, imagine you actually studied it. Imagine you actually studied this whole thing, and you're like, I know exactly what is going so on right now. So okay, I'm good. Did that help with you know, the dealing with it? Like- Absolutely. And because I went through that, then that gave me a really good insight um, to to sort of explain. I mean, I, I sort of already had a methodology to explain trauma to people, mm. and then I just realised that works. But mm. how to amplify that? So mm. what oh. happens is when you can go. My heart is beating fast right now. Right? So you can say that to yourself, right? Um, my hands are sweaty. Um, my mind is racing. Yep, there's signs of anxiety. Nothing to freak out about. It's just anxiety. My body knows how to do anxiety. But what happens is people don't tell themselves that. They go, my heart is racing. I'm going to pass out. I'm going to die. What does this mean? I must have cancer. And they, and they catastrophize and blow something out of proportion. And when I was talking about rehearsing, if I thought any of that and I and I didn't have an answer, then my brain then starts to worry and make up stuff. Because the brain's a story, t- you're a storyteller. And if you tell yourself really unhelpful stories about physical symptoms, you know, before, before you know it, your life's over. Yep. Or you can go, I'm having a flashback right now. It is totally a normal response for what I just went through. No big deal. It's going to pass. It's got a name, isn't it? Emotional reasoning? Emotional, uh, emotional reasoning is all emotional misreasoning, which is what more people you know, do. It's thinking like, you have an emotion like anxiety, therefore something bad's about to happen. Oh. Mm. Yeah. But that's not always true because um, sometimes it is, I mean, gut feeling is different to emotional misreasoning because gut feeling is about intuition. And there's heaps of science around that, and can be you can be totally spot on. You know, something bad's about to go down, and it does. But that's but anxiety is something different. Anxiety is about stories you've told yourself. It could be about genetics. It can be about what you you know, 
being raised by an anxious parent and now you've just learned to worry about everything in the world. Yeah, and you can undo it. So there's therapy to undo it and there's different types of therapy and in really severe cases, some people absolutely need medication to overcome trauma, mm. um, to help them along. And look, quite frankly, some of the trauma is, some trauma that people experience um, is really, really heavy um, and it's very hard to unsee what you see. It's hard to unsee what you see. So if you've seen something in, you know, a, a tragic car accident or a family member has, you know, passed away in front of you or um, something has happened to you in terms of you've really severely injured yourself or a child just gets sick and has to go to the hospital, um, it can be quite traumatic for people. And so it sticks in people's memory. Yeah. Mm. So what I gathered from this is basically if you already prepare yourself like, like uh, prepare your brain and all understand the brain yeah. that okay I'm encountering anxiety right now I'm I'm scared right now or this or this or this you can you can easily overcome it it's the same thing as a, if right now you put a random guy in a fight he doesn't know how to fight he's oh he, he shuts down yeah. but if, if a guy that knows what's going on he understands okay right now I gotta calm it yeah I gotta calm it down I gotta do this I gotta do that yeah you know all of that so that's basically... Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the most common things that we can teach kids to do is, one is to have an emotional vocabulary, mm. so to expand their vocab when it comes to words that describe emotions. Mm. So kids will commonly describe emotions like happy, sad, mad, excited, hopeful, you know, mm. that type of thing. But anger can be broken down into many, many, many different words. Mm. Okay? And if you just tell yourself, I'm feeling angry, then part of your brain gives permission for your body to come to the party and just be angry. Mm. <laughs> but if you describe yourself, if you say to yourself, actually, it's not anger, it's, it's um, frustration, or I'm annoyed. See how different they are? Mm. Or I'm disappointed. Mm. So you've got disappointment, low level, you know, frustration, a bit more. Mm. Okay. So irritation starts to come up, you know, anger, and then you just keep going. Rage feeling irate so you can keep going because being irate which is like really severe really intense or rage is worse than anger you get like you can look calm and be angry mm. you can't be, look calm and be in rage yeah in rage you're about to mm. you know, do something pretty dumb probably yeah <laughs> um that is amazing so understanding the brain sort of helps out with overcoming these Totally. Yeah. yeah. Would so that help in re rewiring? I can't say the word. Rewiring your neurological pathways. You know. It's wiring your brain in a way that prepares yourself more effectively for the adversity that's probably going to come your way eventually. For future trauma. For future trauma. But what about past happen. trauma? Past trauma is different strategies. So you can do lots of things by. Firstly, you have to understand what's going on in your body, and I think that's the biggest thing for anxiety. Not just and trauma is a form of anxiety, but being able to identify. Okay. What is, what's actually happening in my brain and getting someone to do a bit of psychoeducation on what, what is, what's happening physiologically when your body's experiencing anxiety. Like, why are you getting heart palpitations? Why are you getting dryness in your mouth? Why, are, why can't you stop thinking? Like, why can't you switch off? You know, why do you feel like you need to punch something? Okay, all of it is, can be physiologically explained and it's not because of your personality and it's not because of your nationality and it's not because of your generation. Yeah. It's because you're a human and you have human chemicals running through your system 
that are going to stereotypically come up in different ways, like as in when you're in fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. So we can teach, we teach a lot of, um, or almost all of our clients, um, how to calm themselves down in different ways. Right? So you can go in a cognitive way, so we can work with people's cognitions or thoughts, to go, what is the story you're telling yourself right now, in this moment that you're experiencing this, you know, frustration? Okay, so let's use road, being on the road and being stuck in a traffic jam, okay, or someone cutting you off in the car. So if someone cuts you off in the car, your reaction is not caused by them cutting you off. You can tell yourself that, but that's going to be really unhelpful. Okay, so it's not them cutting you off that has caused it. That's called the stimulus, right? It's the external event, you didn't control it. Oh, but actually I allowed that to happen. It was part of your cutterer law that that person cut you off, mm -hmm. right? Now it's over to you. You get to decide what you do next, okay? As in what you think to yourself, which is either going to propel and increase your stress, frustration, anxiety, anger to the point of rage in some situations, um, or you're going to go, whatever, idiot. Or you're not even going to go, drivers these days. Right? Mm. So depending on how what you tell yourself, the same thing could happen to you and me, and I'm the one person. Ah, oh, yeah. crazy driver, you know, beeping the horn and you know that type of thing. And you go, I'm doing. Yeah. yeah, he made it to the red traffic light first. <laughs> yeah, sometimes yes. Right, so like you let that. it go <laughs> because you've got a you've got better scripts, like better calm down scripts at dealing with unexpected events. So I'm, if I'm going, rah, 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 how dare they and who they think they are and that type of thing, I'm totally ramping my emotions up. I am creating my anger. Okay? No one has a remote control to any of your hearts except yourselves. So I can't press anger in any of you. Okay? I, can, I might represent an external stressor, but you still get to decide what you do next. Now, is it that simple? Like, it, it'd be so simple as I was like, oh, yeah, we choose it. Just like changing the channel from 7 to 9 or Netflix to Stan, you know. Like, it is a little bit like that. We get the choice to go from, you know, we're not going to sit watching some crappy show on Netflix and go, this is horrible, this is boring, this is driving batty. <laughs> and just stay there watching the, watching the show. Yeah, you're going to flick the channel, okay. So we can flick channels, but with what we're doing is we want to train ourselves to flick emotion, particularly the negative ones, yeah. and hold on to the good ones longer. Um, but what happens to what we're competing with is automatic thinking. So thinking that has stemmed from our childhood and beliefs and that type of thing. And so we sort of condition ourselves to have really unhelpful thoughts when we're stressed or when we get surprised or shocked. And if we have that, then that can also lead to um, like the experience of negative emotion. But what happens is you can have an automatic negative thought, which makes it way more likely that you're going to get frustrated or angry. Or disappointed or worried or sad um, and then what you have to do is to go how helpful is that if I keep telling myself that what emotion and am I putting myself in if I keep telling myself that line or a better question to ask yourself and I mean actually ask yourself this question um, is there something more helpful I could tell myself right now that'll make that'll put me in a better headspace is there something more helpful than this? 
So someone could genuinely treat you like crap, okay? And you go, this is so unfair, they shouldn't treat me that way. You're spot on, they shouldn't. Does that give you, do you, you know, should you then feel justified in trying to get in act retribution or rage or, you know, or go into a tit for tat cycle, you know, where they treat you one way and you're gonna treat them back or worse? No, you're lowering yourself. You're lowering yourself because you, you were given intellect to reason and to be in control of your behavior. Just as, as humans, we're not practiced in it, or we haven't been taught the strategy. Mm. So when people go, or come to me and say, I've got an anger issue, I go, no, you don't, just don't have a strategy. Well, can I go a bit left right now? Go left. <laughs> Why did you become a psychologist? I want to know that. Like why? Like what triggered you? Because because me right now, like if if I was a guy in year eleven or year twelve or thinking what should I do, mm-hmm. and I had this chat with you, yeah. I'll consider uh, become a psychologist. Sure, I want to go back. And yeah, but because uh, I've already done my course and all of that, and I'm here right now. I'm happy with who I am. But like, what made you become many to the psychologist? Because in year eleven, I failed chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, uh, who did no, else? No, so in um, I, year 11, I was, I was, well, I think, I, I don't even know what I thought I was going to be in year 11, but um, I was doing chem and I wasn't doing psych. And then I heard the psych class was really fun. Oh. And I went, that totally appeals to who I am. And, and, and I wasn't doing so well in chem. Yeah. And I went, ditch chem, study psych. Yeah. So in year 11, I swapped over to psych and did totally love it. Yeah. And then did psych in year 12 and did well in it. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to become a psych. Actually, it was one of three things that I wanted to do. Totally mm. different careers. Yeah. Like, mm. I could have gone into public relations or photography or psychology. Right? Oh. Um, and the truth is, I just I got into psych. And oh. That's what it was. I just got in. And, and I would have been happy with any of those three industries. Mm. Um, and so, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's an industry that I really love. It's very diverse. You can do lots of things, work with different clients. There's 11 types of psychology, so you can go 11 into t- different well, diagnostics. I don't know that. Off, but, you know, you can work yeah. in different spaces, hospitals, schools, <clears throat> yeah. private clinics, um, work for um, soccer clubs, you know, like oh. for in sports yeah. psychology, a lot of guys go into that area. It would be a research side, um, health, be health side, community side, yeah. Mm. Forensic psych, so you can deal with um, understanding crimes and crime scenes and criminals and... <sighs> Pretty oh, in, in TV shows, like the lie yeah. to me, like there was a. Oh, that, that's it. I love that so show. For, like, he he puts it in a cube, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a random cube. Oh. Yeah, it's amazing. Man. It's actually it's it, a real it, it got cut off. Yeah, they ended it for no reason. I think something happened to him. Yeah. Something happened. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think. I think. I don't know. Long story short. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I deal with people. Yeah. Yeah. A quick question. Oh yeah, and my name means advisor counselor. What, your name? Monique means advisor counsellor. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, but I didn't know that until when I was studying psychology. Uh, yeah. Well, what language? Uh, French and Latin. Uh, it means advisor counsellor. Mm. Wow. You that's, meant for this. That's Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kabbalah. Probably meant to do this. I know this last question. Might be, again, out of left field. <laughs> um, there's a lot of stress about knowing yourself. In this day and age, especially, mm. like, what kind of word of advice do you have for kids? Maybe not even kids, just people in general. Mm-hmm. How do you get to know yourself? Like, like, what strategies 
or advice do you have for people in, you know, cool getting into question. that? question. Um, okay. Be able to answer this question. Yeah, you're going to write it down with <laughs> your fake iPhone. Um, what are your thoughts? That's it. Mm. Be able to answer that question. We're not trained to answer that question. The only time you've ever get asked that question is where? In the psychology room. Other than that, job, job interview. interview. Yeah. Right? So it's the only social situation in your life that you will be asked what are your strengths, which I think is a bit disappointing because we're not here just to work on our weaknesses and solve our problems. We're here to be awesome. Like we're here to totally be awesome like and to be really, really good representatives on earth and to change the world or to create the world that we all want to see and to you know be happy. Like we, that's, That is the natural inclination. None of us naturally are inclined to be failing and to feel depressed. It's, it's against the natural inclination. So the natural inclination is to be significant, to have a meaningful life, to do something that leaves a legacy, um, to feel valued, loved, important. That that's the natural inclination for people. Mm-hmm. From a Islamic point of view, we're meant to be living up to the resources that we've been given, and they are our strengths. But if you are unable to articulate what those strengths are in words, okay, and I mean so far beyond, I'm good at maths. Or camp, which wasn't. But, okay. And now, if I was just basing my self-esteem or my worth on my ability to be successful in maths or chem, I would be feeling pretty proud about myself as a yeah. human being. But thankfully, I was given way more than that. Okay, and I don't just mean my ability to study psychology or pull out a great poem. Okay, I'm talking about who I am. We are not our skills; we are our strengths. Okay, we are our characteristics. And the thing is, you can develop characteristics. Not everyone can develop skills. Mm. So some, so some educators might go, yes, everyone can do math. Yeah, to different abilities. Not, not everyone can be a genius. But can we all learn to manifest um, humility or creativity or being more organised or responsible? Yeah, yeah, we can. And it's our characteristics that change the world, not our strength, not our skills. So, so it's what are your strengths and find ways to answer the question so one way is to go online and to look for lists of descriptive words like adjectives right like qualities and attributes if you go list of attributes and you go to images and a whole lot of these pages will come up and there's like literally columns and columns of all these words and you do a bit of a circle right you go through and go like me not like me And if you find a page, then you go to nut it down a bit, any page, because it really doesn't matter what page it is that has, say, 100 words, 20 words, 30 words, and you go, out of the words on this page, what am I, What would be my top five? Like, what would be my top five attributes? And then you take that top five and you commit it to memory, you memorise it, and then what happens is if you start owning your strengths, you will see more opportunities in the world. You will see they are right there in front of you. Okay, but if you, so for example, if you see yourself as creative, then a creative opportunity comes your way and you will put your hand up for it, you will leap to it if you own creative as one of your top five. But if, you, if you're not articulating that, you might just have an inkling that you are because you, you know, you're good at art or graphics or, you know, like you can whip up, you know, some master you know, video piece um, or, you know, pull out a poem or compose some music or however, what other types of art forms there are. Um, you might have an inkling, but unless you own the characteristic, you may not 
really, it may not motivate and come into your body to motivate you to jump to the opportunity and create opportunities, capitalising on your strengths. Mm. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that would that would probably be my absolute, you know, yeah. that, that can change your world. The other thing is how can you use your strengths to actually solve this situation you're in right now? Yeah. It could be a study situation, a personal situation, a marriage situation. Is just go um, almost like a, I've got this. Like, I've got this, if I know who I am. Like, in the sense of, I just need to go back to my top five, and how do I use those qualities to be better in this situation? And you're more confident in yourself. And totally. that kind of thing. That is confidence, confidence is certainty. Certainty of yourself. That's mm. it. And that's by knowing yeah. your strengths. It's not awesomeness. Confidence mm. is not awesomeness. Or arrogance. Okay? Yeah. Confidence is certainty of you in a space. Mm. That's it. So if you don't know the words, if you have no words to describe yourself, then you will, the, the consequence is not being confident. Yeah. Right? Like you might have confidence in your ability to drive a car. Great. That's only based on the fact of your certainty that you've done it heaps of times and that you're probably pretty good at it. But you're, but you're referencing your history to feel confident driving a car. Mm. If I'm not confident in maths, it will come into my body and I will look down and go to teachers or lecturers, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't pick me. I don't know how to answer this question. What if I get it wrong? But if you identify yourself good, you know, in a particular space, that energy comes right up into your arm and your hand goes up like, yeah, I want to take that opportunity and I don't care if I'm wrong because it doesn't matter if I get something wrong, I'm still that quality. If you're unsure of whether you don't use this, the other second way to do it, as in to get better self-awareness is ask people you trust to describe you. People you trust. Now, you could go, yeah, but they're going to say nice things. Yes, the cute ones. Don't you want them to? Like, like, so it's not, we're not getting to the point where we're driving arrogance here. You're getting people to give you the words that you need to use. And, and we're not going to, no one's going to flash up their, you know, top five in every conversation. Did you know, hey, by the way, I'm really organised, reliable, responsible, <laughs> you know. And creative. You know, competent, innovative, um, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> you Sounds like something I should do. <laughs> I'm very self-aware. So I come across as arrogant sometimes, which my parents hate. But, like, I come across as very like, arrogant. Confident, yeah. I say I'm very self confident, Mm. but yeah, a lot of them say a lot of them say I'm very arrogant. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) just be awesome on stage, some on other some other stage where you need to be. Yeah, done, done. (laughs) You're in front of them, yeah. So you've got multiple strengths, so you've got to realize, you know, like identify which ones you bring out. Yeah, not now. In what situation, yeah, Yeah, it's not you're not successful if you're using humor at a funeral. Oh yeah! Right? Oh my so god! Funny, and same, same with the you know a kid in a class. Yeah. Like if you you can be the funny guy, mm. which is awesome on a stage, mm. and not awesome when you know like you're distracting the entire class. Yeah. Yeah, yeah or driving on the side of the mountain. Don't yeah. be funny. Yeah. At all. Yeah. <laughs> Focus. I'd rather focus come out. Yeah, and yeah. organize yeah. driving around the mountain than funny. Yeah. Alright, so you, like, you can choose your strengths, otherwise if you get the wrong strength in the wrong situation, your downfall, yeah. your vulnerability. Mm. Yeah, another topic. But yeah. You, you going to wrap it up? or I don't okay. know, we can keep going for it. I've, I've got like, do you have a question? Because I have... You, you, have, you, you have hundreds. I don't think but we've got time. Yeah, we've got time. How long have you got left? Okay, but I, I don't think it will take you five minutes to answer this, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's like vice versa of knowing yourself. So I know a lot of people that fall into this state of victimization 
and uh, they kind of like they always think to themselves like okay whatever's happened to me has happened to me and I think of myself as somebody who should be stuck in that situation I should s and they kind of like get addicted to sorrow does that mm -hmm. make sense mm -hmm. and, they, and then they, they, they feel like they feel like what they're feeling is alright and the people around them should resonate with that feeling of themselves for example mm -hmm. and um, they kind of are stuck in a loop of sadness and they feel like they can't get out and basically I think that they, they, they really leech off of the energy of others in order for them to, to feel better about themselves like how and like obviously I'll just let you go ahead and just um, just describe it. I think when sometimes we identify people who are struggling in their experience of positive emotions so they're sitting in a really low space First, we've got to be careful about the judgments we have of people. Some people may not choose to be there. Right? As in, they, they might actually be experiencing depression. If people are really unable to lift themselves up out of a space after two weeks, um, like if you see someone who's in this really low space, um, they actually might be experiencing depression. So being a good friend to that person is to sort of say, hey, I've noticed you're feeling like this. Is it, do you reckon it's depression? Like, just saying it. Because remember, we've got better mental health literacy mm. and mental health literacy improves in our community when we start using the right labels with mm. things. You know, not like, hey man, what's wrong with you? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's going to make you feel crap that they're not well. You know, so they w you'll shut them down. But if you can go just straight to the source and go, you know, like, do you, like and sometimes if you ask it as a question, okay, could be depression like that. So you're not going, it's depression, you know, because you're, you're not a clinician. But, yeah, sort of stepping back and going, you reckon it is? Yeah, you reckon it could be. You know, like, here to help. Now, then there's, then there's other, I think, people who sit in low moods where things haven't gone their way or they've experienced a series of setbacks or disappointments and that they, not, not necessarily intentionally, but just by default of feel, needing to feel significant, loved and valued, have learned that they can use illness or failure to get people to give them attention. Mm. Okay? So in order to fulfill being significant and important. So it's sort of like, you know, when you're a little kid and you get sick and what happens next? You know, your mum and dad or, you know, grandparents yeah. coming, oh, what's wrong, I'm empty. You know, and they're like, oh, what can I do? Oh, here's some soup. And you're like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I should be sick more often because I'm getting heaps of love and attention here. And some people don't grow out of that, but some people have never had it. So that they can grow up and, and get into sort of adolescence and adulthood, and they've actually not had that level of TLC, so you know, tender mm. loving care and attention. And you can grow up and then, therefore, you're experiencing emotional deprivation, like your tank's really empty, and you just happen to have found a way that by focusing too much on your on everything that's not going well for you, feeling sorry for yourself, you know, sitting in a space of like really like pity, pity is really unhelpful. Mm. Yeah, and I've got like a little acronym. It's like Nafisa, not like the word, but I'm uh, sorry, like the name, but it's sort of <laughs> pronounced like that with two E's. Like never, ever, ever, ever feel sorry for yourself again. Right? And that's what you control. You can control that. However, mm. if you need love and support and attention, then find better ways to get it. Yeah. Like, and don't use sickness and don't use failure or disappointment and setbacks as a way to get it. Mm. Like don't, and don't stay in that space. A lot of people also say don't use human beings to do that. 
that like would you would you would you advise that too because a lot of people say you have to use your own you have to you have to build your own how do i say it like value based off of yourself and not really off others and then if, if you try to like use other people yeah to gain that that stability or that yes and no right so you're balancing between developing self-efficacy which is your belief in your ability mm-hmm. that you can deal with the situation right but not everyone has it and it's a skill that gets learned over many years in fact decades okay so it's like a confidence but it's a confidence that no matter what gets thrown at you that you'll have a you'll, you'll find some way to cope with it like it could be really crap but you're still going to find some way to cope with it and you'll come out on the other side and it might take ages but you'll still get there that's self-efficacy but not everyone has it and you're certainly not born with it okay so depending on the type of really functional healthy family environment you've come from or you have a champion on your side which could be a sister a brother a coach a great teacher you know any man maybe um yeah it's like someone to champion you or you know an uncle or someone who's just it doesn't matter what you're going through. They've given you the lending ear. They've given you the attention that you actually need and the nasiha, the advice. Mm-hmm. That's been useful and you've gone, oh, yeah, I coped. But social medicine is really important. So social medicine is drawing on the support from people when you're sitting in a low space. We weren't born in a cave, inshallah. We weren't dying on a lawn. And we totally thrive physiologically and, and psychologically by being around other people who care for us. So it's why communities thrive together, okay? And they die disunited, yeah. So it, it totally affects, like, um, our heart rate. If you're in love with someone, you get such a flood of emotions and can heal lots of different illnesses. If you, you know, um, if you have a laugh with someone else, that even when you haven't found it funny, but the fact that your friend's laughing, now you're laughing at the fact they're laughing, Okay, so, and that's only happening because you're with another person, not because of what happened is funny. Yeah. Um, and then our body, we have what's called mirror, uh, sorry, our brain has mirror neurons. So true, when you are around positive people, they lift you. And the opposite is true. If you are around people who are really down, or everything's a drama, like nothing's good in their life, and everything's a catastrophe, then yeah you have to censor and moderate how long you're around those people okay and it doesn't mean right oh well i'm done with you but everyone has their own limits but the best thing that i think we can do in society is sometimes if there's many people around one person that needs support everyone's sharing the load okay and it shouldn't be just put on one person failing that it's referring people onto the services that you think that they might benefit from and being careful how you make that recommendation. Yeah. So like referring them to so that they can lift their skill set. And when people say, how do I get, you know, a family member to go and see a psychologist because I think they're experiencing something, they're going through a bit of a funk um, emotionally or in a relationship or out of a relationship or that type of thing. And then I go just tell them their experience, you know, what they're going through and their reaction to it is pretty human. Um, but they're probably lacking a strategy and that's why they're stuck. That's mm. not that they're not crazy, there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. They just don't have a strategy to become unstuck. And if they did, they would have used it already. Mm-hmm. Well, I've learned so much in this podcast. Yeah, I sort of would. 
so much. I think I've known this lady my entire life, and I've never had a sit down with her like this. Oh my god, today. <laughs> yeah. So I think we we'll wrap it up here. Yeah? I'm gonna start calling you Auntie Monique as well now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, appreciate but yeah. it. Yeah, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Eh? thanks for listening to the podcast guys hope you guys enjoyed it don't forget to stay updated on all our socials at fair income peace